welcome to episode 117 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and our returning guest is Alex Shepard, a staff writer for The New Republic and the co-founder of Full Stop Magazine. Alex, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Our subject for today is a long-delayed episode that Alex and I wanted to do about Michael Winner's Death Wish 3. Well, I think, you know, I was trying to think if the first time I came on, I think immediately after, I was like, the next time you have me on, we should do Death Wish 3. Uh <laughs> And then I think I've been on maybe twice since then, and it just never happened. But I think because both of us were like, we have to do this right. Yeah. We have to do this the right way. But besides Death Wish 3, I also forced Alex to watch a previous movie by Michael Winner, <laughs> 1984's Scream for Help. These are two films made by a madman, and they complement <laughs> each other very well. They're very sleazy and violent movies that look and feel like after school specials. We're also going to talk about the World Cup and Argentina's thrilling championship run. Patrons of the podcast got the tip just before the tournament began <laughs> that this was going to be Argentina's year. On the episode I did with Conrado Falco on the recent Diego Maradona documentary, we were all in on Argentina, so I feel personally vindicated by the results. You should feel vindicated. Congratulations to you. You <laughs> did you. this. You did. Did it's this. You, you and Messi and Maradona. New York, a city pushed to the edge. People pushed to the limit, and no one's got the guts to stop them. It's collection time, Charlie. Three murders, yeah. four rapes, nine acts of random violence. This isn't a neighborhood, it's a war. But there is one way, one man who won't be pushed, Charles Bronson. What's the problem? Now you're going to die. It'll be just like before, Mr. Vigilante, with one important difference. You're going to work for me. People have got to start to fight back and hard. I mean, I think when we first started talking about this episode, I think what I had said to you is that I think that this is the movie that like most explains America to me. And I think to a lesser extent, American movies or like the direction of American movies. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I'm not alone, you know, uh, Tom Sharpling shares this fixation, but like the body counts of the Death Wish movies are like something that I obsess over. Where I think, actually, I wrote them down. Uh, I said, re- I of course rewatched the whole series. So in the first movie, eleven, the first Death Wish, which I think is what nineteen seventy four, yeah, uh, eleven people are killed. So that, this is this is not the Bronson body count. This is just total. Uh, so, you know, we could say 11 people are killed. I think Bronson probably has eight of those on his hands. Uh, and the second fifth, when he's in Lo- uh, Los Angeles, uh, 15 people die. And the third one, 82 people <laughs> die. Most of whom are mowed down in a yeah frenetic machine gun wielding sequence. And in some ways, as I was watching it, for the second time in four days this morning, uh, I was like, oh, this reminds me of the end of the World Cup final, where <laughs> it's just totally insane. Uh, and you feel like anything can happen and there's no logic whatsoever. <laughs> but I think for me, you're also in that body count. What it mirrors is in the, the first film is a, a deeply conservative and reactionary movie. But it is still one with, I think, a kind of point of view or a discernible point of view, which is about people being driven insane by the liberal state, more or less, which tolerates crime and rewards criminals 
and punishes hardworking, conscientious, observing uh, architects um, like Paul. And uh, the second film is essentially a work of cinematic nihilism, but it's not overtly fascistic. Uh, it's, it's more or less just about, I think, what happens when you slowly start to uh, ignore those principles. And then the third, there's almost no effort whatsoever to justify anything that he does. It's just the world is a chaotic place and you have to be on the good side. And the good side actually looks the exact same as the bad side in a lot of ways. Um, but it's good because it's, it's sort of the side of law and order, but like it's an anti-police movie as well. Um, you know, and if you look at, like, I think for me, the evolution of, of the American right in particular, which is always underpinned by overt racist and violent fantasies, and you slowly watch the rationale for them be stripped away. I don't know if you can, you can like see a better sequence than, and that also mirrors again, the rise of Ronald Reagan, uh, and other things, um, you know, than the first three Death Wish movies. The thing that strikes me the most about the first Death Wish film is that it seems to be uh, in its reactionary politics about a liberal uh, guy who's not into guns and not yeah. into violence and and wants to be left alone. He's uh, he's kind of like a normal man who is forced to become a violent man because of the world around him. Yeah, so I the movie asks you to identify with uh with you know can you blame paul kersey for doing this look what the look what was done because he wasn't armed yeah look how yeah, things it, improved for him once he got a gun yeah and that's i think that's the fantasy that's been offered by conservative media from the very beginning like the national review has run with these forever there've always been these stories like barry weiss loves these things now this idea like all of our media that's obsessed with these people in san francisco who are suddenly you know turning right because a homeless person showed up on their block and occasionally mumbles in their direction. Uh, and it's this idea, you know, it's this idea, right. Of, um, you know, a conservative is a liberal who is mugged by reality or whatever that, you know, and, and no, like Paul Kersey is, is that right. Where he's somebody who just wants to have his nice normal life. And, you know, he lives in a bubble uh, and conservatives are the people who see, reality as it really is and they see that it's this kind of hobbesian uh sort of yeah uh, uh, bacchanalia and the only way to resist it is weirdly also by embracing all all of the same principles you have to fight fire with fire that essentially anything is justifiable uh in in to advance this the other thing that has to be said about death wish three is that it was made a couple of years after the bernard getz incident in new york uh, an incident that was obviously inspired by death wish yeah i think the first movie was was very prescient in terms of the politics at the time this is something that michael winner likes to boast about as kind of a feather in his cap i think he was a little bit lucky this movie is weirdly anti-police, or not weirdly, it's anti-police in the way that people at the time were anti-police because they believed that the liberal state had shackled the necessary protectors of the people and that the only way to truly take back your city is to basically just start shooting people randomly. And I think with Death Wish, the first Death Wish, it starts as you know someone who is trying to uh, get vengeance for uh, his wife, who is murdered his daughter who was raped 
and slowly descends into him. Basically, a punk looks at him sideways on the subway and he shoots him by the end of the movie. Um, and and yet, like I think that that you know there was a, a rising consciousness. Like that's the uh, campaign that you know Richard Nixon had had run on that campaign in 1968. Right, Ronald Reagan takes that mantle. Uh, you know, as as governor of California as well, uh, runs on it again in 76 and then wins in 80, partly again, like telling people that the streets are a jungle and that, you know, the state has failed to protect you. And the only way that you can protect yourself is, is with individual self-reliance and self-sufficiency. The Bernard Getz situation, <laughs> yes. um, it actually mirrors what happens in Death Wish. Like yeah. it, it was a shooting where the guy showed up with an unregistered gun. Yep. And shot four black kids yeah. uh, on a subway train. All teenagers. All teenagers. And in real life, um, Bernard Getz was actually a fairly racist guy. And, yeah. and when he was arrested by the police, he was saying things like, I'm just, the only thing that I regret is that I didn't have more bullets. Yeah. And he taunted the kids that he shot. He paralyzed one of them. The other three survived their injuries. I know that Getz wound up only serving time for having an unlicensed weapon. He was not charged with attempted murder or with, um, you know. Well, yeah, the other thing, too, is there have been debates about how provoked the attacks were. So, so Getz had claimed that they had threatened him with screwdrivers, basically, uh, and there was no evidence of this at all. And this had just kind of been, it's part of the lore, uh, depending on it. So again, too, I mean, the other aspect of it is it really does just feel like you know, a guy is on the train and some black teenagers are being loud and he shoots them. That's, you know, I think that's, that's one way of looking at this attack. And, and again, too, I think that this is also part of the politics of, of these movies, right? It's like these movies backfill an assumption that people have. We're going through this again right now, right? With this idea that we're in, this, in the midst of this huge rise in, in violent crime, which there is a rise in violent crime, but um, but what these movies do is that they portray New York in particular, but also the wider society is, is a kind of like, well, it, the first death wish is, is a Western. It's very clearly inspired by Westerns. Um, and, but you know, they, they imply that it's the wild West, that it's a dystopian hellscape that you really have to, you have no choice, but to be armed and to be prepared for anything that could happen at any point. And if you're not doing that, then, then you're a fool or you're inviting trouble. You know, the other contextual thing for this movie is that between the first, or sorry, between the second and third Death Wish, Rambo First Blood comes out. Uh, and I think that that's the other, that's a kind of political and cinematic like context for this movie that suddenly extreme violence is, is normal. And I mean, Rambo is a movie that also, I mean, I love that movie and, and or I'm interested in that movie in the same way that I'm interested in this one, but. Um, you know, politically, I think it comes from a very similar place. Uh, and again, is also like the first Death Wish, a movie about being betrayed by your own country in this strange way of, of, of America also ignoring its own values. You know, but unlike the first Death Wish, where the violence is still relatively self-contained, the violence in, in Rambo is, is uh, fantastical and, and like cartoonish. Uh, and so I think with this movie, you see two things happen. One is like, it's the introduction of just totally cartoon gun violence, uh, and machine gun and the image of like a, 
you know, a 55 year old liver spotted Charles Bronson holding a giant machine gun. Uh, but I think also, you know, of the, the politics of the first movie becoming mainstreamed both by Rambo and by Ronald Reagan's presidency. Uh, and then, and then there too, like, I think those movies also became weird in their politics as well, where I think what in Rambo first blood part two, he's just like fighting communists again. Uh, and they kind of normalize it. But in these movies, um, you know, in some ways, like that mirrors uh, the kind of Reagan conservatism where you kind of like veer close to fascism and then eventually like swerve away or swerve close to it. Whereas in the Death Wish movies, you just, he just wants to kill other Americans. Yeah. And he also arrives into town in a really low rent way. Like he, he comes in on a bus. Like this is like assassin <laughs> kind of behavior yeah. showing up into New York with two bags. <laughs> yes. You know. and into Port Authority too, which in 1984, I'm sure actually was one of the few places that was r- roughly similar to the version of East New York that they uh, portray in this movie. Now, now, uh, circling back a little bit to uh, how we mentioned the Bernard Getz shooting, um, you know, another movie of recent vintage that alluded to this true crime event was in Joker, when uh, the vigilantes target uh, are some white finance bros. And this uh, reminds me that... Uh, that Joker was trying really hard to emulate taxi driver. But the one thing that it didn't want to touch was the racial politics of Travis Bickle and like his like clear racism. Uh, Joker made sure that uh, although there was some uncomfortable racist stuff in Joker, like that a lot of the people that were giving him a hard time in the bureaucratic system were black people. Yeah. um, He didn't target black people when he was uh, going around killing people. So they made the sort of, the thugs that attacked him in the subway, some white kids. And mm-hmm. in this movie, the gang is multicultural. Like he tries really hard. It's one of the only sort of like, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say progressive, but it's one of the, the third rails that winner doesn't want to touch is the idea that it's all black crime. It's so a I've, multicultural I'll, gang. Did you reread or read Ebert's review of this movie? No. When you're working this? So Ebert touches on this a lot. And it's in that like very Eberty way where, He's like getting at a point that's good, but is clearly on deadline. It's it's done in a very slapdash way, essentially, where where you know, like Ebert is basically he's, he's doing a version of this where he's saying, you know, like look, if you look at where violent crime is really bad, like this, like accurately, whatever. He's he's trying to say he's trying to make a point about like black on black crime in a way that is awkward. But I think what he's trying to get at is what you're saying, right? That this movie has no racial politics, right? And if you're trying to make a movie about gun violence in the inner city, then you will have, you would have, you should have to touch on race, which this movie doesn't do. But I think that that is part of it's like essentially like fascistic, like aura where the movie is basically not trying to make a point based on race. It's just trying to say there are people out there who are doing this to you and it doesn't matter who they are. And like, I think it's very coded as, even though the guy who uh, who plays the gang, the gang leader, who's God, what is his name? Is the, Gavin O'Hurley. Gavin O'Hurley, who is um, Fraker. Yeah, he, yes, Fraker. Yes, is the greatest. <laughs> the greatest um, the name is so is one of the best characters ever. Yeah. Uh, the giggler in this movie is my personal favorite, but um, but 
I feel like the movie gives everyone an out to not have to think about this is a racial issue. Like, and it's so self-consciously centered to not make people think, oh, the reason I'm personally, you know, a white person watching this movie, like freaked out about violent crime isn't because it's, it's racialized in my mind. Like Mm -hmm. this is, this is almost post-racial. It's deeply fucked up in a lot of ways. Yeah. In a, in one uh, interpretation of it, it could be that this is some kind of a uh, slight against what you get when you have multicultural society is that you get a bunch of, you know, thugs okay. from all races as opposed to, you know. <laughs> um, you get Gavin O'Hurley running your gang, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> he's really, um, he's a good bad guy in many ways. Uh, yeah. I, 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 he's got like a reverse mohawk. Yeah, I don't Manny, know whether they were trying to cover up the bald spot or something, but he's got like a bald head and then blonde hair on the side. I said he looked kind of like uh, he and Kiefer Sutherland were probably going for the same parts at the time. Yeah, he he's one of the highlights of this movie. He's one of the most ridiculous characters. I mean, Manny Fraker itself is like such a Dickensian name. It's so perfect. But he's yeah. genuinely, um, you know, like one of the other villains in the movie is Alex Winter, who... Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's uh, from... Um, this was pre-Bill and Ted. Pre-Bill and Ted, yeah. So for me, I mean, for me, it's not pre-Bill and Ted. So I'm always like, oh, that's the guy from Bill and Ted. Um, but Gavin O'Hurley is, I think, one of the few people, one who's actually trying in this movie. I mean, this is... Charles Bronson is basically... We're talking, you know, we talk about Lionel Messi not moving around very much. <laughs> Charles Bronson does not want to move at all. Yeah. Uh, Gavin O'Hurley is trying. Uh, he yeah. is giving a performance, uh, uh, you know, like almost no one else. You know, Martin Balsam is in this movie as well as one of the many elderly people. And Bennett. He, yeah, Bennett, yes. One of the reasons why I have so, such a soft spot for Death Wish 3 as a as a canon classic. Yeah. Bronson had a three-picture deal with canon at the time, but one of the conditions was that one of them has to be a sequel to Death Wish. Yes. They shot about a week or two of location work in New York. But for the most part, this film was shot in London, uh, sort of near Brixton, uh, in an abandoned hospital area. It was an old hospital that got knocked down, and then they just used the rubble as the set. So there's some very unconvincing Americana in the movie. like (laughs) It is ridiculous. A laundromat. Yes, (laughs) yes. gills laundromat yeah there's like a half block that they keep redressing for different needs uh, in the movie and then they uh, you know there's some massive explosions later in the film but um there's but it just leads to the artificiality and and just something feeling off in this movie that that apparently most of the extras in the smaller roles were all british and they had to adr everybody so (laughs) marina sirtis is in this film and they've dubbed her to sound chicano Yes, which is yeah one of one of the film's lesser sins, <laughs> which is probably saying something. But no, I think it, it get, the thing that makes it. I mean, I I do genuinely really love this movie in a lot yeah, of me ways, too. and I think because it's it's like a fever dream, like it it looks ridiculous, and it's done in a sort of half set way where it's yeah it's half or not half, but for a quarter of the film is in East New York. It will sometimes switch back and forth mid scene. Uh, or like they'll cut, you'll cut from what's clearly London. <laughs> you'll just see like this weird long uh, triangles that they have on half of their buildings yeah. to, to, yeah, to East New York. Uh, and it, 
looks ridiculous. As you mentioned before, like they, there's only one corner in this <laughs> that is used over and over again um, for any host of things that, I mean, I've probably seen this movie 15 times yeah. and like it still throws me off where i'll be like wait i thought that that was the laundromat and but now it's the taxi depot <laughs> or it's yeah. like a convenience store um but then they'll also switch where you'll be there and then you know there's a scene where one of the few uh black characters with a speaking role who's a victim uh, who's like being mugged and that's very clearly East New York, but then on either end of it are, are two scenes that are very clearly shot in London. And, you know, it's almost like, it's like watching a ridiculous version of like, um, like the born ultimatum or, or something like these like jet setting movies, uh, except it's all supposed to take on, take place on essentially one and a half square blocks, about 25 minutes from where I live in Brooklyn. Well, one thing that I found funny is the guy who plays the giggler uh, got a role in Full Metal Jacket. Wait, what? Wait, t- which role? Uh, in the second half of the movie, there's a scene where uh, this, um, I'll, I got to grab his name. Kirk Taylor. Kirk Taylor. But there's a scene where they're all in the barracks and there's this guy named Private Payback who's talking yeah. on, on the bed. That's Kirk Taylor who played the giggler. That's beautiful. So apparently... He and Michael Winner didn't get along on the set, but Winner called up Stanley Kubrick while he was casting for Full Metal Jacket and suggested him for that role. And this leads me to another minor theory that I have is that Stanley Kubrick may have been inspired by Death Wish 3 to film (laughs) Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut in London standing in for New York. And Vietnam, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I Uh, wonder whether or not... Kubrick got the idea to sort of restage uh, America in in London from I mean, in Death ways, Wish Three. In some ways, Death Wish is like a stupid version of Full Metal Jacket yeah. too. It's about how you you know you slowly become trained to kill and desensitized to violence, and how how society in fact conspires uh, to make all of these things acceptable to you. Yeah. Um, well, the moment I knew that this movie was something special was when Bronson gets arrested because they mistake him for being the guy who killed his friend Charlie, who was killed by the gang, and and Ed Lauder, who yes. plays the the what's <laughs> I gotta grab his name, <laughs> Inspector Schreiker. Yes, such a great <laughs> character. So, and we love Ed Lauder. So he's yeah. sort of sort of a good i guess he's supposed to be the semi-good cop in the sense that he's bronson's ally by the end even though he gives him a rough time for most of the movie but in in a very important way he's a bad cop because the deal that he offers paul kersey who's in new york under a different alias is that he knows that he's the guy from the first death wish movie (laughs) yes and he he's under some pressure to do something about the rising crime in New York. So he makes a deal with Paul Kersey, which is you kill the punks and I'll provide you some protection. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's really like, that's essentially the fulcrum of this movie, right? Which is like, this guy's given a license to kill and you're, you're meant to believe that it's like him getting revenge for his friend, but he really doesn't seem bothered at all. I mean, his his daughter is murdered in the second movie. His wife is murdered in the first movie. His friend is murdered in the third movie. But, like, there's no pathos. I mean, Bronson, I don't know if anyone has really, like, 
well, I've seen Death Wish 4 and Death Wish 5, but yeah. if anyone has like sleepwalked through a movie, at least by like Death Wish 5, they have a kind of jackass forever thing where they there's a kind of new group of Bronsons that they're bringing through the wings. Yeah. In this, he, he might he might speak for less than five minutes total in the mm-hmm. whole movie and he's mostly just like it's it is the simpsons bronson he's yeah. just walking around at like a trot just going like hey valley and then <laughs> and like I'm somebody's like some ice cream <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes and like some you know punk will be like fumbling trying to steal a car radio and i'll just shoot him in the back <laughs> and you're like this has nothing to do with your friend like, it's nothing to do with anything well, there's that really fucked up scene where um, the 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 housing project where Bronson is operating out of because his friend Charlie's dead, but the rent's paid for the rest of the month. So Bennett lets him just crash there. And uh, at one point they go to this elderly Jewish couple's house <laughs> for for dinner. <laughs> Menachem Golan probably insisted that yes. uh, we work this in. Um, they seem to be sort of heading into this direction of, uh, you know, oh, these these gang members are, you know, th- they're picking on the poor defenseless Jews or Jews, something yes. like that. Who then become the biggest cheerleaders for his sociopathic killing spree. Yeah. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> so so in the middle of the dinner, Paul Kersey does this thing where he he buys a cheap car and sets it up and puts a nice radio in it and uh, buys a gun. And basically sets the car up to be stolen by the punk so that he has the reason to kill them. But he excuses himself when he hears the car being broken into and goes downstairs, and <laughs> shoots two people dead, and then goes back upstairs and sits back at the table. Yeah, and they the whole movie, they become this device. They're the audience stand-ins are this like, I mean, they're what, they're 70s, right? Like it, it, they're, they're clearly European immigrants. They're not American Jews. Uh, it is so heavily coded and and so I find it so like morally distasteful because they like there's one point where they're you know like they get they get robbed at one point and Bronson like builds essentially like if you go to like one of these um tourist trap medieval torture device place or yeah. torture museums, yeah. like builds a, a a board that'll spring up with nails in it. And like, you know, there's one point where uh, somebody tries to break back into their house and like he goes to reset the trap and there are these two red splotches in it and the old Jewish woman is like what are those? And Charles Bronson goes, their teeth. And like <laughs> it cuts to the woman and she's just smi- has this huge smile on her face yeah. and you're just like no like this is not the way that things should be. No. Also I wasn't sure how the teeth could have been extracted from someone's yes. face. Like just yes. in terms of the physics of the weapon. Yeah. But yeah, there's a thing, or there's another point too, where, you know, once the sort of um, bacchanalia of violence starts where, yeah, the woman just like, the husband's like, what's going on? And she just is like, he's shooting the creeps or whatever. And I think you're, everyone is meant to be like, yes. And I just I was like, no, no. Yeah. The other gross scene in the film is when the, the old Jewish couple, um, have a run-in with the police where they collect the gun from the old man and they're yes. they're they're acting like uh nazis a little bit and they take the gun and then the very next scene is the hoods attacking the old people again you know like like they're really pushing the buttons 
in that scene. I mean, it's a lit- certain- yeah, it's a literal Trumpian fantasy, right? It's this idea that the police, thanks to the liberal state, are out to actually protect uh, the hoodlums, right? They're there to hurt law-abiding people who just want to protect their families. They're there to protect uh, gang leaders, right? Uh, and I think, you know... <laughs> You know, there's such a great scene early in the movie when, when after um, Bronson is arrested, where um, where you know, he's getting beat up by Ed Lauder, and Bronson's is just like, "Is this? Do you always violate people's constitutional rights?" And he just says, "I'm the law. That means I get to violate constitutional rights." <laughs> and you, it's so incredible because it's this total inversion of like a kind of line you would hear in like 1968, right? That it's like a, it's like a conservative calling a cop a pig. But it's not because that pig is actually violating constitutional rights. It's because what he should be doing is being a jackboot, right? That he should be out on the streets uh, breaking people's jaws and you know, cleaning things up. And instead, he's been you know, shackled to protect the criminals. This leads me to the other aspect of why this is sort of a proto-MAGA movie is that there's a stretch in the movie that is almost like um, an infomercial for the National Rifle Association. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's one. It's a movie that loves guns. All the guns in it are... Uh, they, I mean, it reminds me almost of like Star Wars, the guns in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like in, in the first Death Wish, you know, he just is given a normal gun. Yeah. And it's sort of... And, and in some ways, that is also a very NRA thing of just like, here is the perfect device to save your family. But in this, they're all like ridiculous guns. Yeah. Like at no point does he just have like, you know, a, like Saturday night special or something. You know, he only has this pistol that seems like it's like six feet long. Uh, and it like is almost, you know, it's, it's like um, the way that things are in Marvel movies now, right? Like it's so that like people would be like, this is, I must have the Charles Bronson death wish three gun. Well, the gun is a character in this film. That's how yeah. fucking insane this movie is. It's At one, one point, of the more developed characters in yeah, this movie. It's true. <laughs> so, so the movie makes a, a big deal out of uh, Bronson saying, "My friend Wildy's coming." Yes. And, uh, he, he's he's saying, "My friend Wildy's coming." He keeps <laughs> yes. hinting at him, and like at one point, uh, even one of the actors blows the pronunciation of the thing. He's like, "What about your friend Wildy? What you keep talking about him?" And they yeah, kept yeah. it in the movie. Yes. <laughs> but, so Okay. So, so, and you know, later Bennett's like, who's Wildy? And he's like, you'll see. Like, he's <laughs> like, he's really happy about it. And then um, he sets up a, a mailbox, a, a private mailbox and goes to get this box and brings it home. And then gathers all his friends around and he says, Wildy's here. Is he, there's a, there is a great scene in this movie. It's, it, is, it is legitimately one of my favorite shots in movie history because it can only be described as Chekhov's P.O. Box. Yeah. Where, Because where, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, why are they giving, they're showing Charles Bronson registering a P.O. Box for 25 seconds. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, that's why. And, it's so ridiculous. But it's I I, I got out the, my uh, my stopwatch. Uh, Fifteen minutes of the movie is the lead up to Wildy. They just keep yeah. talking about Wildy. No, no, I was just saying that you mentioned it earlier. But Charles Bronson arrived on a Port Authority bus. 
Wilde is, it's a large pistol, but he could have fit it in one of his duffel bags. It's not like, no one is, there's no, there's no TSA and whatever bus station he is coming from. Like, there is absolutely no reason for this to have taken so long. And again, this is also a movie that's like 85 minutes long, too. Like, the only explanation is they're just like, we have to give him a big gun, but we, We'll, we need to buy another 15 minutes because otherwise we don't have, we don't have a feature length. <laughs> yes. So, so Wildy is a 457 Magnum that comes in a nice little wooden box with a little plaque from the, from the gun manufacturer with these, you know, ceremonial bullets. And this movie is so fucked up that um, the, the, the Wildy gun has a gas pressure uh, release on it oh that, and you can calibrate it based on the, uh, the amount of gunpowder you want in the bullets. So there's this crazy artisanal bullet scene where Bronson's got a little weights and he's making his own bullets and popping the lids on. <laughs> like yeah. When you consider how many people he just wastes in this film, yeah. what's the point of this careful, you know, this bullet construction sequence yes. except for the fact that this movie is just uh it fetishizes gun culture well yeah it well it not only fetishizes gun culture but also one of the important ways that i think it's pro proto mag uh maga is that uh this sort of army of people that rise up eventually to stop uh the gang are all like uh, let's say charitably like sextagenarians um, <laughs> yes. they're in their 60s and 70s and it's really this like fantasy that i think it has actually gripped large swaths of american culture that you know the elderly are the only sensible people and that things used to be normal even though the the people who now are watching fox news right were 20 years old when this movie came out or 15 yeah. years old when this movie came out uh and and like this, it presents this really, you know, like one of my notes was just like in real life, the like teens in this neighborhood would absolutely destroy every old person in this. Like they would just like just like beat the hell out of them. And like, but Bronson is is like he is John Rambo. Um, and it's like the other thing that is both great and ridiculous about this movie is that he is given John Rambo like powers, but he is Charles Bronson moving at like the slowest pace you've ever seen in your entire life and like sort of surrounded by other weird old people. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of this, this elderly community that's under attack from the multicultural punks. Um, what, what is the name of that crazy uh, housing complex in Florida that keeps coming up in the news <laughs> oh, yeah, with all the old yeah. people? The villages. The villages. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is like a, the villages transposed to East New York. It has its own weird political system. <laughs> so what I was thinking um, about uh, the weird uh, portrait that this movie plays is that the gangs in the movie, uh, they're not particularly menacing, like they're annoying, but they come across almost like they're in an off-Broadway musical based on Mad Max. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, there's there's actually, I find there to be something like kind of Archie comics about them, actually. Yeah. Like they'll have like silly hair and yeah. like little, they wear face paint. You know, yeah. like I, I think, you know, the scene in Death Wish 1 uh, when the home invasion scene with Jeff Goldblum uh, where, uh, where, where Paul's... Um, wife and, and daughter are attacked is actually, I think it's, it's really well done. It's genuinely menacing. Uh, it's shot really well. Um, it's scary. Um, these guys never seem 
scary. Like they mostly just seem kind of cute, you know, yeah. like I would, I would be annoyed. I mean, eventually they, they're kind of, they do increasingly lurid and pulpy things, mostly kidnapping, raping and murdering people. Mm-hmm. But the movie, I mean, again, too, it's, it's because we haven't talked that much about Michael Winner yet. It's because it's directed by, someone who very well might be a sociopath it, there is it's given a, there's a light touch to it that again mm-hmm. like you know it, it you think of a clockwork orange right um, and i think people idiots or whatever <laughs> criticize that movie for for like glorifying the violence in it but in this case you're like it's not glor like this is what happens when you actually are like yeah you know these kids they're just this is just what they're doing you know well, maybe we should talk a little bit about Michael Winner, in yeah. fact, because yeah. the thing about Death Wish 3 is that Winner's origins as a, as a film director, he made these wacky British comedies, and then he turned into an American genre filmmaker, but, and then he hit on working with Charles Bronson for a while. In, in Britain, he worked a lot with Oliver Reed, That's, yeah. you know. There, there's a there's a giant red flag, <laughs> yeah. and then um, then he started working with Bronson, and then he had his gigantic hit with Death Wish. All these films are very serious and um, and uh, pulpy sort of movies, but Death Wish Three feels like a throwback to his wacky British comedies, which yeah. we will also uh, talk about with Scream for Help in a little while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something about it that is it recalls like parts of a Hard Day's Night at times, or there's the, all these kind of frenetic scenes of people running around. Uh, it's, it is a deeply funny movie. I mean, some of that funniness comes from the fact that I think my understanding at least is that Bronson was not super thrilled with the direction that it took. And, you know, I think at this point was going to half-ass it no matter what, but his maybe quarter-assing it, mm-hmm. but it, which gives it an added degree of, of like kind of deadpan English humor, weirdly to just have this, 70 year old guy killing people but also kind of just mumbling his lines and shuffling around um and you know the the as we were just saying like the gang members themselves are like fundamentally comically i mean we mentioned alex winter is one i mean the giggler who we also talked about is is like one of the great random guys to be in any movies, just yeah. just a gay guy who laughs. But when he dies, you know, the line when they say, um, you know, when the guy's like, they killed the giggler, they killed the giggler. It's like yeah. one, of the, one of the greatest like scenes. And it, it is played, it's played as comedy in the movie too. Uh, that fu- line is really funny, but I also loved what Gavin O'Hurley says because they're like, "They shot the giggler, man!" And he <laughs> yeah. says, "They had no business doing that." None. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, what a movie! It's just the best. <laughs> yeah, let's circle back to to the other sort of criticism of liberals in this movie, which, which is his girlfriend, the public defender, played yes. by um, Deborah Raffin. Uh, she invites him over. She's really, uh, she really comes on strong with this old man. Like <laughs> yes. She really wants, wants to get it on with him, I think, but she invites <laughs> him over to her place for dinner. And uh, I just want to single out the God of transitions, Michael winner. He edited <laughs> this movie under an alias of Arnold crust. That's the name <laughs> that he used as an editor, but he does all these incredible scene transitions. So when, when, 
Deborah Raffin says, do you like chicken? And Bronson <laughs> says, chicken's good. I like chicken. <laughs> yes. And then they cut to the bones of the chicken carcass. <laughs> it's like, like with this music, we haven't even mentioned the music by Jimmy Page. Oh, I, we're, in this film. we're talking about this at length, but yeah. I the scenes with the lawyer though are so great because she starts being an ACLU ish public defender who is over concerned with defending him, I guess. Whereas yeah. he just sort of walks out of the courtroom and refuses to talk to her, and then just shows up and immediately is like she's she's charitably thirty five years younger than him, and is immediately mm-hmm. just like oh you know he's like why'd you come out all this way to find me and she and she's just like well how else was i gonna ask you out on the date and, and you're like what um but like i just immediately in my notes just was like how has this lawyer not been disbarred like this is a huge ethical violation um but again she is part of i think the movie's general like political sense which is that essentially like the only way that you could possibly be a liberal in this universe is to have no experience with the way things actually are like on the mm-hmm. streets. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think like, you know, the funny thing about this is like the first death wish kind of makes a compelling case for some of that. Uh, but in this movie, you see what the actual fantasy of conservative politics is, which is, that essentially society is lawless either way. So you may as well be the person pulling the trigger. And that, you know, the movie shows this as actually like a kind of romance that the thing that you really, what you really want is, is the power that these creeps have. You want the power that Giggler has. And if you have that, then even the hot blonde public defender will fall in love with your uh, weird, uh, you know, like <laughs> Charles Bronson's wearing weird shoes in this movie, and he's like, <laughs> he's just clearly an old man. Um, but you know, he's irresistible. So. so, after they have their dinner, she goes on this huge fascist rant about how she hates being a public defender, <laughs> yes. and and it, she goes from zero to sixty too. Like she's like, oh, it's just. You know, sometimes I wonder whether or not I'm just putting the criminals back out on the streets. Yes. And then she says, damn it, people have got to start to fight back and hard. <laughs> and hard. <laughs> and, then, and then Bronson just says, some people would say that's an extreme opinion or whatever. And you're like, yeah. And uh, she goes, I don't care. And then, and then at one point she gets, she com- maintains her composure and she says, I'm sorry. Why am I angry at you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because who she should be mad at is the giggler. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the next uh, few minutes, she gets killed. <laughs> in one of the in funniest. Of the... <laughs> no, I think for me, like, you know, like I, I, I was uh, born in the late 80s. And so, so many of my, like, any movie that was made before that, all of, like, The Simpsons, you know, has done a parody of it. And so like, I remember my parents showed me like Citizen Kane when I was like eight. And I was like, I've seen this already. Like it's the right. Teddy Bear episode. <laughs> um, but this is the only thing, like there's so many Death Wish adjacent parodies in The Simpsons. But you, when you watch this, you're like, actually, like it's the same. Like the explosion of this movie is the exact same as a McBain sequence. It's this yeah. like slow motion car scene. It's clearly done in England because it's like it's done like too safely. So it like looks terrible. Uh it's like just the explosion happens out of nowhere. Like, like it's just a normal fishbone car accident. And then for no reason one of the cars just explodes. Um <laughs> 
it's incredible. Like it is genuinely the thing that would be at the end of a McBain sequence in this instance. And and then Bronson comes out of it and he's basically like totally fine, you know? Yeah. It never comes up again. Yes. He doesn't seem to be avenging her for anything either. <laughs> no. He's just over it. Yes. I think also there's just like before it is like the like post-coital scene between the two of them yeah. is like so uncomfortable where you're watching Charles Bronson put on his undershirt while they while they talk about getting out of the city that I just feel like she's almost like killed just so they never have to address them having sex again. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. The, the explosion itself is like, it's so, it's funnier than any, like you think about these movies like, um, like Hot Fuzz or Tropic Thunder or something. And it's like, mm. this is funnier than any like parody action sequence imaginable. Yeah. It's so good. I want to uh, give you a little fun fact about Michael Winner. Uh, <laughs> when, when I read this article about him where they mentioned that, his ringtone on his mobile phone was Copacabana by Barry Manilow. <laughs> what a legend, and when it would honestly. Go, and when it would go off at meetings, Winner would be searching around in this vest that had 12 pockets in it. So it was like, do, 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 do. And he could never find it. And then the phone would stop ringing and then continue the meeting. And then it would start ringing again. <laughs> <laughs> and, Somebody mentioned this in an obituary that they wrote about uh, somebody else. They said that, you know, he told us this funny story about seeing Michael Winner at a meeting and Michael Winner contacted the person who wrote this piece and threatened to sue. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's the most, it's funny because you're like, he is both a classic English person who moved to America and was clearly like his already conservative politics were radicalized by contact with America but he's so mm-hmm. English in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, again, I think the Death Wish movies are paramountly American movies, um, mm-hmm. but he is so English. Um, well, the, you know, it, he reminds me a little bit of of Nick Adams. How great. these people who come over to America and then try to catch up to become as American as possible, but they cannot shake the fact that they're from the Commonwealth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think like, and again, he's also trying to. Yeah, there's a weird thing where he is trying to embrace Americanness, and again, I think you see this in the first Death Wish. Like, the thing that's genuinely novel about it, or I'm sure people have done it, had done it before. You would be the expert on this before, but or uh, the expert on this other than me. But um, is like it's so corny. But he's just like, what if I made a western, but said it in the contemporary like urban environment. And it, but it really works as a, as a movie uh, and it's a kind of restraint, but then like slowly he just like takes that and it goes more and more crazy. Uh, and in this, like you can see it, he's still trying to bring in like various American cinematic touchdowns, but it keeps like butting up against this very English like type of kind of middle-class satire too. Of, uh, and I think I'm maybe not intentionally even, but, like the movie's gotten so abs- the idea of the film has become so absurd. Where again, like we have not talked about this, but um, but Charles Bronson is an architect. Like he is an architect by training. He is a, he's presumably not designed a building. But like when you see the buildings in Death Wish One, like they're um, they're like mid century, mo- you know, they're modern buildings. They look pretty cool, you know. Like Paul Kersey, mm-hmm. you know, like he was he was really doing it, um, and and now. 
he's hanging out in East New York and mowing people down with a machine gun. Like, yeah. it's funny. Now, I, I do want to mention that um, Michael Winner, when he died in the year 2013, all these stories started to come out and, and they ramped up in the Me Too era uh, when people were finally coming forward with their stories. And there were several about Michael Winner, uh, most notably by Marina Sirtis, who is in Death Wish 3 in a small and thankless role that requires a lot of nudity. Um, she had a quote at a, I think she spoke about it and she said, I know you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead, but I hope Michael Winner will rot in hell for all eternity. She said that um, she had to film a rape scene in a cold parking garage. And when the production assistant tried to put a coat over her to keep warm, Winner screamed at them to remove it because he was trying to light the scene. And do you know also that scene where um, the punks are attempting to rape a black woman? Yes. Yeah. She was played by a woman named Sandy Grizzle, who was at the time Michael Winner's lover. And she gave interviews about the relationship after he died in the Daily Star and the News of the World. And she said that he used her as his sex slave. And also when Winner died, he left several million dollars uh, each to various girlfriends of his that he'd kept on the down low. So there was all this um, news about what a cad he was that came out in his death. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like this is, a movie that is made by someone who seems to genuinely be sociopathic in a way that, uh, yeah, like it's, it's a movie that only a sociopath can make. And again, to somebody who I think also is, I think the first two movies are, uh, theoretically have this kind of, it's a very male, uh, approach, but like they're theoretically about avenging women, you know, in a society that's done them wrong. But like, by the time we get to Death Wish 3 and another movie that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, <laughs> which preceded it slightly, like they're just kind of overtly misogynistic or like you, you would say, you know, exploitative, right? Um, mm-hmm. And like this, this movie doesn't even try to hide any of that stuff. And I think in Death Wish 1, again, I mean, again, this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier to some extent as well, where in the first Death Wish it's not quite titillating, right? The idea is that like modern society is terrifying and that you must be protected by it. But in this, he's like, he sees it as being like lurid and like almost kind of attractive. And that, like in a way that I think is like genuinely, um, you know, from a, a like psychoanalytic perspective is kind of fascinating where, you know, he he's enamored by the type of violence, particularly the violence against women that the, criminals in this movie do um but yeah it's always done in a in a particularly exploitative and disgusting way so you know i remember hearing about this at the time or when it came out and just being like well it's not surprising at all what i think is so fun about death wish 3 is the wrongheadedness of it and and how it basically is pornography yeah the violence at the end is pure pornography the way that the movie basically ends with 15 minutes of people being mowed down left and right, this gigantic body count. And what I mean by uh, how it shares a relationship with pornography is that there's no plot anymore. (laughs) You know, it's like the the story has now been abandoned and all we're seeing now is the act. 
Yeah, I mean, the plot ends roughly 40 minutes into the movie. I mean, theoretically, it ends with the explosion, which is, again, never really addressed. And, in, and, and I think in a modern version of it, there would be a scene where he goes to the funeral and he talks to a family member who blames Charles Bronson for this or perhaps gives him a pep talk and says, like, go get him. Uh, but in this, it just all disappears because, again, like, the whole movie is a pretext for that final sequence. I mean, I think the movie is a pretext for three things. Oh, no, just two, really. It's it's to show uh, naked women and then to have a 15-minute sequence in which Charles Bronson most people down. And you're just kind of like, everything else is is random in it. You have to kill occasion kill main characters occasionally, but there aren't really any characters in this movie, right? Like, by this point, like... Um, by this point, even um, even Kurtzy is he doesn't really have a personality anymore, mm-hmm. and you don't know why mm-hmm. he's doing it. And then you're like, oh no, you know why he's doing it? It's because it's just thrilling to kill people who you've decided deserve to die. But at the point where you know this is a deeply conservative and reactionary filmmaker, the vision is a, is a lurid and horrible vision. But in a way, by the end of the movie, it accidentally heads into Sergei Eisenstein territory. <laughs> 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 it's not sure where you're going with that for a second, but that's yeah. <laughs> like it's a it's a montage of violence and and uh, and destruction and death, and uh, it's it's uh, like a it's like um, Soviet editing techniques being used <laughs> in a way to just propel this propaganda forward. Well, and um, you were talking about the chickens, the chicken sequence earlier. I find the movie to be so bizarrely edited up until that point, and then you're like, oh. It's being edited like that last montage the whole time. It's so yeah. It's so fast for an old movie. Um, despite again, you're watching Charles Bronson, who literally can't lift his legs more than two inches off the ground at this point. But the cuts yeah. really come like pretty quick. Um, yeah. And I think the only way to make sense of it is to just to try to get people ready for what's coming. Uh, and there really is. I mean, there have been movies with body counts like this before. But there's nothing, or sorry, after. But there's like nothing that I've seen that's quite like the end of that movie because it's just there's like no pretext for it at all. It's just total war. It's like the end of Saving Private Ryan, except it's mm-hmm. happening in an ostensibly normal neighborhood in East New York, uh, and it involves like a septuagenarian guy killing teenagers. And like, I, there's a thing like. With police backup. <laughs> yes, yes. And then they let him go. Like, yeah. there's an old Sharpling joke about this, the end of the movie, where he was like, if this happened, it would be the biggest story in America for years. Like, yeah. like people would just be talking about it forever, where you're just yeah. like, oh, this old man who killed a hundred teenagers. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, we we're talking about Bernie Getz. Like, he didn't even kill yeah. anybody. Like... But what sends it into Eisenstein territory for me is when finally the people are also revolting and they're yes. picking up guns and they're killing these bikers who, by the way, look very British. Yes. Although like it looks like they're all riding Nortons. Yes. <laughs> like they're they're not American motorcycles. <laughs> okay. And the, the fire Russell. truck that shows and the fire truck that shows up is a British fire, fire truck. truck yes. <laughs> like where now they're not even trying anymore to make you think that it's in America. Um and to me, this is all what 
these are all pluses for this movie. Like the, it's so artificial and so wrongheaded and so uh, like violence heading into the X rating yes. territory that you, it has to be seen to be believed. Yeah. I like, mean, it's, it is a genuine, I think, yeah, you know, there's like the Roberto Bolaño book, like Nazi literature in the Americas. And like, yeah. I think this is like a genuine piece of American fascist art and, and it is, but it works in that way. And I feel like it, yeah, for me, like it feels totally of a piece with like everything that I've had to cover for work for the last yeah. eight years. Uh, but also like, it helps me make sense of it in this way. Like, cause it, it's outlook is like so perverted but also weirdly like so like coherent uh, in a way that I think, you know, a lot of stuff when you cover American conservative and Republican politics is not, not that overt uh, or at least like, you know, in, especially pre-Trump, there's always this effort to like obfuscate or cloud these things. And even again, like the first death wish in particular is, is really like kind of, it's a dog whistly movie in a lot of ways. This is not a dog whistle. I mean, aside from it's, it's obfuscated racial politics. This is not a dog whistling movie at all. It's just like there are bad people out there and they're being, and like the liberal state is helping them. And our only hope is to arm ourselves and kill them ourselves. And like, that's the only way that we can retake society. And like, that is the message that has guided Republican politics for the last 45 years, 50 years, really. And now in, for the last, Six years, it's been overt. And, but that is, that's the theme of Death Wish 3. And, you know, in keeping with this MAGA sort of MAGA before MAGA uh, <laughs> vibe of, of this film and Michael Winner's vision is that, you know, this is a man who made his uh, fortune on vigilante movies and movies where the hero takes the law into their own hands. But in real life, Michael Winner was a very ostentatious uh, fan of the police. Yeah. And in the 80s, he started a charity called the Police Memorial Trust, yep. which erected over 50 memorials to British police officers that were killed in the line of duty. They were usually placed in or at or near the locations where the cops were killed. And Margaret Thatcher herself was with him for when the first one was was opened and in the same year of Death Wish 3, yeah. 1985. They truly deserve each other. <laughs> and I'm sure they're together right now, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> As a transition towards Scream for Help, we should talk about the musical re uh, relationship between these two movies, because they were each scored by a member of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I mean, I think the soundtrack for Death Wish 3 is one of the best things about it. <laughs> I think it's a great, yeah. it's a great soundtrack. It is, it like, is a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, it has a kind of like, um, you know, it has that kind of um, <laughs> synthy jazz feel of at Beverly Hills Cop, but it's better. And it's like, um, it might be the last decent thing that Jimmy Page ever, ever did. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of, sh I assume he was in bad shape in 1985, but, um, but it's like a pretty like boppy uh, soundtrack that, you know, it, it recalls parts of uh, it's like, I mean, again, in the same way we were talking about Taxi Driver, it feels like a sort of funhouse mirror version of the Taxi Driver soundtrack to me. 
Um, but it, it, but in the same way, it's also like ridiculous and fantastical. But it's made by Jimmy Page. It's so clearly made by Jimmy Page. And also, one of the things that I love about Death Wish Three is it it was made in the 1985, but it seems to depict a five star wanted level yeah. from Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> yes. and the music helps to sell that yeah. idea too. Yeah, it yeah, does I mean, sound like it's video just, game it's music. Unimpeachably good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's also, which makes it funnier too, because like, you, you just can't overstate how old Charles Bronson is in this movie. Like, yeah. he's so old. Um, yeah. But I, like, I think the soundtrack, like, it kind of bops. Uh, I mean, I am, I am a, a Led Zeppelin, uh, a diehard in this way, but, uh, but I, I really do think, like the movie itself is ridiculous, but the soundtrack does seem to kind of recognize that uh, mm-hmm. and accentuate it in a way that um, the soundtrack and the movie we'll discuss next only makes what you're watching seem more ludicrous. Christy was an ordinary teenager, <laughs> but she hated her stepfather. Oh shit, Paul! Well, mom. Cheating on you. This bull asked me to pick her up at her house because she couldn't get to the agency. That's bullshit. It became an obsession with her. Hi, Christy. In Michael Winner's ah! new thriller, Scream for Help. I'm upset because my stepfather just tried to murder my mother. Paul did it. I know he did. I think that it is very, very similar to Death Wish Three in terms of camp and violence and and um, and pedestrian filmmaking that becomes incredible filmmaking almost despite itself. Yeah. Yes. I actually, while watching both of these, I, I was thinking about an experience that I had where I had just, I think maybe the same day, I went to go see Avengers Endgame in one of those theaters at like nine a.m. because I was like, I should go see this movie. Uh, I, I just picked the earliest screening, but it was one of those theaters that like shakes you around and like sprays water yeah, in your yeah. face. <laughs> and I was like, just like so, you know, it's like for four and a half hours, and I was yeah. so miserable. And then I went somewhere that was showing, I think, a thirty-five millimeter, like Dirty Harry, and mm-hmm. I was like, I think just because my brain had been so broken from what I just watched, I was like this is the most beautiful filmmaking I've seen in my entire life. <laughs> and I kept thinking back yeah. at this while watching these movies. Cause I was like, you know, cause I think part of me was like, Oh, that's just what happens when you see, you know, almost any movie that was made, you know, in the pre digital effects era. Um, mm-hmm. Not these movies. <laughs> um, no. no, they are, they are ugly movies and <laughs> both, uh, both morally and aesthetically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Scream for Help is like just pure. I mean, in some ways, it's even grosser exploitation than than uh, than Death Wish. Um, and again, I mean, one of the weird things about it too is that you know I was thinking that it reminds me a little bit of like um, you know, there's been a trend in horror movie. Well, not a trend. Like you know, the dominant form of horror movies is about trauma, often sexual trauma. Uh, and again, too, there's a kind of like you know Jennifer's Body style like. It, this movie feels in some ways like a conservative Jennifer's body or something. Like if you take a movie about, uh, you know, a teen girl's sexual awakening, but have like a creepy lecherous 
old man who hates women's sexuality and women's freedom and basically everything else. And then it's just like, oh yeah, um, her stepfather is trying to kill her, but mostly we just like want to watch her and her friends fuck each other. And also her stepdad fuck his very young mistress. Uh, and, and, uh, the movie just kind of meanders through these, through these things. Well, I get ostensibly about, it should be about her and her mother saving themselves from this bad man. But like, it's very, very clear that Michael Winter identifies for the stepdad. He's he's trying to kill them both and like thinks that he's cool. Uh, It's, yeah, Winner Winner really leans into the misogyny in this movie. Like there's I mean, the long and the short of it is that it's a movie about this teenage girl who uh is suspects that her mother is being taken for a ride by her her new stepfather who is yeah. trying to kill her. Um she's half right in the sense that he's part of a group that's <laughs> trying, trying to, to kill her. her. Yes. It's just incredible. <laughs> and she, uh, her name is Christy Cromwell. <laughs> which is uh, great. And uh, her friend just calls her Cromwell, which I actually really yeah. like. Yeah. And so she's kind of a Nancy Drew meets Veronica Mars kind of sassy teenage girl. Uh, this movie is set in New Rochelle, New York, but again, with Michael Winter being a maniac for financial savings, they filmed some exteriors in New Rochelle and then they flew the entire cast to London for all the interior scenes. And there are several uh, sequences in the movie where it does not feel like New Rochelle, New York. It is like very clearly not New Rochelle, New York for almost the entirety of the movie. I mean, it is. It becomes less New Rochelle. There's a long bike sequence, which is actually pretty good in New Rochelle, yeah. where if we were, again, she's tailing a car on a bike, which also doesn't make a lot of sense. It's the suburbs, whatever. But, but I love, I love that shit though. I love any movie that has a bike chase. It's great, like a car being chased by a bike. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like, so it's it's it's. I don't know whether Winner was trying to be funny, but it was very funny. Which also ends with her then being bought a new bike by the stepfather, yes. just just for kind of ridiculous cinematic reasons. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's part of his alibi. Yeah, uh, but yeah, she's convinced that the stepdad is uh, screwing another girl, uh, and then he show she, she tails him to this apartment building, and then uh, she tries to catch him in the act. But it's a council flat, yes. like it's so clearly like British architecture. Yes, yeah, it, which gives it such a weird like class angle too. Like it just is such a strange movie in that way where you never really know where you are or like who you're supposed to be seeing. Cause like, they, they, I mean, some of the, some, not all of the exteriors are in your shell too. So, yeah. uh, so you're constantly like being, or at least me, it, I was constantly confused, like how I'm supposed to identify these characters and like who they are. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, I mean, like death wish three, it gives it this weird sense of being slightly outside reality um, which allows its inherently ridiculous plot because I think everyone treats it's like a kind of gaslighting plot, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, everyone treats Cromwell like she's nuts because she keeps being like, My stepdad's trying to kill my mom, but you're just like, Well, her brakes get cut at one point, and like yeah. her mom paused on the stairs, and like all of this is like happening in like a four day sequence or something. <laughs> yeah. So you think like somebody would be like, Obviously, something's going on here. We should probably call it the Department of Family Services or something. Yeah. I mean, he's also the worst villain in that. I mean, you say, you're like, oh, she's convinced her stepfather's having an affair. And you're like, no, he's 
she sees him have an affair in their house. At one yes. point, she catches him trying to like turn the gas on to kill them all. Um, yeah. Or just he's covering it up, having turned off the pilot light and put towels underneath the doors. Like He's like the worst murderer in the history of the movies. As it turns out, the stepdad is has this relationship with this woman and her brother is around all the time who looked a little too much like Justin Trudeau for my life. <laughs> yes, I yes. was a little disturbed watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, Justin Trudeau is her husband yeah. and they're also running a con that once the stepdad makes it look like an accident and his wife and and stepdaughter are dead he'll get the inheritance and then they'll kill him christy cromwell figures this out because she overhears an argument between them yes. in the hallway this is one of those movies where the bad guys blab about what they're gonna do yes at every opportunity so she tries to sow discord between the two of them the last 40 minutes of the movie is a home invasion thriller and the movie really narrows its focus into just being on one set yeah. but I thought as suspense, it was pretty effective, even though it was so inept. The other movie that it reminded me of was um, Blue Velvet. Like this movie came before Blue Velvet, but it's the same kind of impulse of the sort of overly square teens in the sordid universe around them. Yeah, this is almost like it's like um, if you mashed up. Well, this will make it sound good, actually. But Blue Velvet and Panic Room. I mean, Panic Room, another movie I was thinking about with um, Death Wish 3. I think another. But like. Those are also both movies by, I mean, by also conservative, you could say some people would say conservative directors or David Lynch's politics or David Lynch's politics. Who cares? I'm not going to get into this, but, um, but like not conservative in the way that um, Michael Winner is conservative. Uh, and, and again, I think the last, once this movie starts going, it's, it is, as you said, like once the focus tightens, it's not awful. Um, but again, I think at this point, like Winner is not interested in. Um, I mean, the other person I was thinking about was like Ken Russell too. Like, mm-hmm. where I mean, obviously these are not like bombastic in the same way, but they're self indulgent in the same way where uh, he just kind of wants to have these like um, like picaresque, but like the things that he are in- he's interested in is like sadistic violence and misogynistic portrayals of sex, and he'll sort of do that for a while. And then the movie will sort of tighten back and become a kind of slightly more normal movie. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that you made me watch this, even though it's it's like so bad. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I mean, it, it has a lot of like 80s teen comedy feel in the beginning, too. Like It was written by Tom Holland, not our current Tom Holland. Yes. But the, the, the horror director, Tom Holland, who uh, went on from here to direct Fright Night and Child's Play, Play, two bangers. Yeah, he wrote Child's Play too, right? You know, as with Death Wish, like, yeah, it's a movie where the, the writing is secondary to the shots, but like the shots in the movie are just naked women and like, the occasional bit of <laughs> violence. And like, that is... The thing where you're like, the the dialogue in both of these movies is so atrocious, and you realize it's because like, oh, you can see exactly what he wants, uh, mm-hmm. and it is yeah, it's essentially to make pornography. Again, this would movie would be a red flag today because um, many of the kids in this movie are underage. Yeah, I mean, it, I I found the first hour or so to be like deeply uncomfortable in a lot of ways because it's. <laughs> 
it's really mostly just teenagers having sex with each other. And, and he really like leans into it uh, in a way that's like, just like, you know, like, again, you should be immediately sent to prison uh, the way, <laughs> the way that he frames these shots. Like, I mean, I was, I was the, the uh, fast forward 10 second button was like really my friend for <laughs> long, long sequences. Um <laughs> Uh, did you stick around for the closing title theme sung by John Anderson of Yes? That's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of my guys, but no, I was rushing to make this episode. So, yeah. <laughs> singing a song called Christy, uh, oh, sounding God. like Carly Simon, but it was in fact John Anderson. Oh, God. Christy, don't ever listen to the words they say. You wouldn't have to change. And the music was done for this movie by another member of Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones. Yeah, yeah look, John, and it's a terrible score. It's one of the worst scores I've ever heard in my entire life. I mean, in some ways, it fits the movie perfectly because the movie also sucks. But um, but uh, it's awful. Like it really feels a lot of the time like Cassio, like those Casio keyboard presets. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like so like jaunty um it's constantly taking you out of the movie and it's really weird because i think you know like he was he's kind of the one tasteful guy in led zeppelin yeah (laughs) and and this is just like so gaudy and ridiculous um which again is fitting but mostly just feels like i mean i guess michael winter must have been friends with led zeppelin but you should have asked robert plant to do this one i don't know now, did you notice that Winner stuck in a couple of the stings from the Death Wish 2 soundtrack on Scream for Help? I thought that I noticed this, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is... When I was doing research on on the life of Michael Winner, I found out that he was kind of a Lights Camera Jackson type when he was a kid. <laughs> when he was 14, he had a regular showbiz syndicated column <laughs> called Michael Winner's Showbiz Gossip. His last director credit is in 1998, and from that point on, he just became a celebrity and uh, he had a long-running restaurant review column called yeah. Winner's Dinners. Yes, and, the, and which is, I have to say, like a lot of them have sadly gone away, but they are ridiculous. They're like long ones that are just about like his credit card getting declined, uh, which are and it being like my MX bill is one hundred eighty-two thousand pounds a month. Like, how could it have been declined? Uh, <laughs> But it's just like, or he'll just like he'll brag about wine prices. He's he was so ridiculous. Um, his columns were. I mean, he obviously again in the same way that we love these movies because he's a truly reprehensible person and he is now gone and can harm no one else in real life. They they, they just become they're not and they're not charming at all. And like his columns are not really charming. You're just like you're a manifestly bad person, but there's something that is so transfixing about, about watching someone like that work. I mean, in some ways he's like, there's like the Adrian Childs, that guy, like his restaurant columns are just all these like stream of consciousness things, but from instead of a sort of a charmingly aloof person, like uh, charmingly aloof, but also just a person who is totally unconcerned with whether or not he's the question of whether or not he's a good person. Um, yeah. There is actually, so there is a website, winnersdinners.com, 
that does have links to some of the old columns. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show description. I'll also put in the show description a really great clip that I found of Michael Winter getting roasted on the BBC while he was promoting Death Wish 2. It's a really gruesome uh, rape sequence in that movie. And he got called on the carpet by this journalist named Anna Rayburn, who was known as the BBC's agony aunt. She was a presenter who was known for her sometimes harsh relationship advice. And she hands his ass to him in this clip. It's so, it's so satisfying to watch because you are like, it's great. Cause I think like, I mean, somewhat freeing to as someone who finds the politics of this movie, these movies to be abhorrent. The second death, which I don't think is very good, but, um, but it's so good to just have somebody with such clarity and to his face, just be like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And he can't really answer it at all. He just, he kind of, he keeps obfuscating and doubling down in weird ways. What is frightening about your film, excuse me, is not the rape sequence, which everybody's getting so very heated about, which is totally inaccurate. And anybody who ever has anything to do with it will know is totally inaccurate, God help them. What is frightening about your movie is it's so bad and it costs $9 million. The acting is wooden. You have a, a wonderful presence in Bronson who I don't think has ever really been very well used. You have a dreadfully wooden Jill Ireland saying lines which in an English accent grate on the ear. Very uneven cinematography, Not very a, uneven well, music. Well, it's a bad movie. Right, You're most movie. entitled to your opinion, but the public are loving it. The public are totally disagreeing with you in their millions in all the countries that it opened, which because is it's about been six or seven. No, not because it's been something. You cannot drag people in by selling them anything. The one thing we know for sure in cinema is that what gets people into a cinema is a thing called word of mouth. People come out of the theatre, their pal says to them, where did you go last night? I saw this. Was it good? Yes, they go. Was right. it good? No, they don't go. Right, word of mouth from Michael Winters. No word of mouth from Anna Rayburn about one final sentence. One final sentence is that it is obviously very much on Mr. Winner's mind to be sodomized. I hope it happens to him soon. Michael Winner, <laughs> Anna Rabin. By the way, I'm wearing my Boca Juniors hat. Oh, hell yeah. What a beautiful couple of weeks it's been. I was mm. saying to somebody else, I've like, I was, I met somebody after work and I was just like, I'm having trouble acclimating to real life again. Did you, uh, did you hear my uh, Maradona episode? I did. It was a wonderful episode. I love that film too much. Decent. We were very bullish in our predictions about Argentina going all the way. So I was very pleased that uh, the prophecy came true. God, I mean, it's still like, it was also just the greatest game that I've seen, I think, of anything in my life. Yeah. It was sort of perfect, too. Like, it was, we, it, the getting, planning, it was, like, such a nightmare. It was, like, all of my different contingents of soccer friends. Like, we had to have, like, a meeting of the five families to, like, figure out the right venue. There's all this negotiation between difficult men. But then it was just, like, we just had, like, 30, 30 people who were just so invested in this. And like there was also this 50 minute stretch where nothing happened in the game, which is also yeah. great because there was like all these people who could just all kind of catch up. And then like yeah. basically as soon as they took Di Maria off, then everyone just slowly like the attention yeah. like started to pull back. And yeah. then you just saw 40 minutes of the greatest thing you've seen in your entire life. So, yeah, I was and I uh, I frantically deleted all my uh, 
it's coming home tweets because I thought I was like single-handedly cursing Argentina. Yeah, I kept, I mean, I, one of my closest friends, my friend Miguel, like he and I had been watching it the whole time. And just every time Argentina went up to nothing in any game, I would just be like, it's just something's off about this, you know? Mm-hmm. And then after the, after they blew it against the Dutch, we just kept being like, you know, then they went up to, to nothing in the penalty games in that game. And I was just like, it's not right here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it, uh, it seemed like the gods were conspiring and, you know, Argentina suffered enough that uh, like, and, and then I started uh, getting all Zen about it. Like, well, France is a great team and, you know, maybe it was just not to, meant to be for Messi and, yeah, you know, Ronaldo uh, got owned. So why, why not uh, Messi also getting owned? And then all of a sudden Argentina roared back and then all of a sudden France roared back. Yes. And I was like, kill me now, kill me now. Yeah. But when um, the first French guy missed, or when uh, when Martinez oh. caught it, all of a sudden yeah. it occurred to me that we are going to win. Well, it's, I mean, it's a thing where you know it's usually faded, not usually, but you, you have a much better chance of winning penalties if you go first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I hadn't thought about was that they were kicking towards the Argentina end. I mean, sort of mm-hmm. everything was the Argentina end. Um, and you could tell like the young French players are just like, between Emmy Martinez and like all of those fans, they couldn't handle it, but it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And I think again, too, it was also like, I've watched this Argentine team forever and they're so brittle and like you feel the weight of history on them. And like this team was totally different than that. Like it was so lovely just to watch them play without being consumed by failure and Maradona. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, but while also being like unlovable shitheads at the same time. Well, uh, I love them, but I understand, yeah. you know, when they were gloating uh, and and yeah. uh, when Messi was uh, yelling at the coach, the but, Dutch yeah, coach. Who yeah, <laughs> uh, just recently recovered from extremely serious prostate cancer, too. <laughs> Did you see that footage of uh, Messi being interviewed and then he saw one of the Dutch guys going past him and he said, hey, fuck you or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. He kept calling him Bobo, which is like yeah. a goofy, like, Argentinian slur. But yeah, it was also, I believe that was Vout Veghorst, who's like this this g- giant oaf who's like a gas station chain heir and anti-vaxxer. Yeah. So also an unlovable dickhead, but in in a way that you can't love him. Whereas all the Argentinians I love, I just have loved yeah. their gloating. They're great. I mean, again, this is like, this is uh soccer heritage, you know, like if you're Argentinian, you're allowed to kick guys and be ungracious in victory. Yeah. And isn't their uh, song that they're singing really gross too? the one that uh, they're chanting? Well, it's based on the lyrics are actually, I think, quite lovely. It's something like, you know, it's, you know, Argentina, the land of Diego and Messi. But then they just list like this unending string of defeats before saying, oh, it's coming. Basically, it's, you know, there it's coming home. But the original is called Boys, I'm Gonna Get Drunk, basically. (laughs) Like, or Boys, It's Time to Get Drunk. And it's just like, kind of like, yeah, like sometimes you just gotta go get fucked up. There's something about this with Messi where, you know, he, he leaves Argentina when he's 13 and is, I think, treated with suspicion and skepticism for basically two decades or is at least of not being Argentinian enough. Maradona is always there, literally coaches the team in 2010 uh, when Messi does not score a goal. 
And Messi is, you know, in a lot of ways, he's culturally more like Catalan. Like he's not emotional. You know, he's like very reserved. He has almost no personality at all. And like in this tournament, it's like, it's the first time I've ever seen, or in the Copa America too, but this is the first time I ever saw uh, his actual personality come out. And mm-hmm. like, it, it was of a child. Like, it's like he'd almost gone back to like the 12 or 13 year old that left uh, Argentina and... And it's been one, you know, in that at the end of that game, everyone was like weeping and crying, and Messi just was smiling like a little boy, and <laughs> it was so sweet. Like I was just like, you know, and this never happens too. Like he usually, you're like he's 35. He should be. He shouldn't have been the best player in this tournament, and he was the best player in the tournament. So it was great. Yeah, the, he he had to wander around on the field in every single. Um employee of the Argentine football federation were crying and hugging him. And he was like, okay. And he just kept (laughs) walking around going up to the next guy. Like he was like, it must've been very uh, surreal for him. Yeah. I mean, there was a thing, I think it was early in the tournament, maybe before it started where, you know, I think um, maybe Scaloni had asked like, Oh, what'll happen? Was asked like, Oh, what'll happen? You know, if, if you lose and I can't remember if you don't win. And I don't remember what he said. And Messi just said, it'll be fine. Uh, and like, that's like, you're just like, have you not watched your team play in these tournaments for the last 30 years? Like, uh, and yet like they were weirdly, um, totally collected the entire time. And like, they always knew that they could do something. And I think, you know, I mean, I love Angel Di Maria so much. Mm-hmm. And, and despite the fact that you know, he's, I hate Manchester United, I hate Real Madrid, I hate Paris Saint-Germain, but he was so good in this game. And it's like the thing I love about the world cup is it's like, um, it's like a rum springer of like, yeah. just guys that I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> Emmy Martinez is one of those guys right now. I'm just like, I love Emmy Martinez. Yeah. Rodrigo de Paul. I love Rodrigo de Paul in this tournament. Like, uh, and it was just so nice to just get to like, just, especially he was so good in the first hour of that game. Uh, and I was, I don't know. The whole thing was just elating. I'm still when it's Tuesday now. And like, you know, I had to wake up at 4 a.m. and do TV about the World Cup on Monday. And I was just like hungover and puffy. And I was just still like, I woke up and I was like, I can't believe I watched that yesterday. <laughs> like, the, This was the last uh, World Cup for Ronaldo, Modric, and Messi. And uh, my neighborhood uh, experienced something they've never experienced before, which was that Portugal got eliminated after Brazil got eliminated, yeah. it usually is the other way around. In my neighborhood, all the Portuguese flags come down and get replaced by Brazilian <laughs> flags. But this time, they got to keep up their Portuguese flags for a day. So that game against the Swiss, where Ronaldo was was left on the bench, and that other guy came up off the bench and scored a hat trick. Yeah. And Portugal was suddenly a powerhouse when they had barely managed to scrape uh, one nothing victories the entire time that Ronaldo was on the pitch. Suddenly with Ronaldo sitting there, Portugal's burning through the Swiss defense. And uh, then they finally let Ronaldo, once the game was definitely in hand, they let Ronaldo go onto the field. And I checked my Twitter and all the Ronaldo fans were so infuriated that he had been shown up on a, on a big scale. Well, I mean, this has been like the most wonderful thing for me is because you just look at it by any objective metric or any, even the eye test, you're like, Messi has clearly always been better. He's been better basically since he walked into La Liga. Uh, you know, Ronaldo had a bit of a head start. Uh, 
And yet this like absurd debate has persisted and like it's become more and more ridiculous as it's gone on. But the way it's like sort of held on is people being like, well, Cristiano is like a big game player. You know, Cristiano has evolved his game in all these ways. And the one area in which Cristiano was better than Messi was in penalty t- penalty kicks. And this tournament, Messi was fantastic in, in penalties and also has clearly I mean, evolved to, you know, he was never the most athletic guy in the world. And now he doesn't run. Like he doesn't, he kind of doesn't move at all. And yet somehow can dribble past everyone. And yet while this is happening, I mean, the larger Cristiano Ronaldo psychodrama has been my favorite narrative in maybe any uh, like political or sporting world. Like I guess maybe since like, the, the post January 6th Trump downfall or something where you're just watching someone with so much hubris just eat it like over and over again, like basically from the Piers Morgan interview to the present. I think that, you know, this is an example of somebody who I think was genuinely betting on himself to be, he's like, I'll be great in the world cup and some other champions league team is going to have to take me. And now you're like, he is going to be stuck. We will not, we probably will never see him play soccer again in a meaningful way. And Mm -hmm. that rules because fuck that guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's off to play for uh, Saudi Arabia now, right? Like, (laughs) I mean, I don't, I think that, I don't think he wants to. Like, I think if that was going to happen, it would have been, if he wanted to do it to be announced already, I think he genuinely thought that he was going to score, you know, four or five goals in this World Cup. He's going to show some team, some striker was going to get hurt. They're going to say, oh, well, we need, you know, a big lumbering guy who doesn't play defense, doesn't contribute to the attack, uh, actively undermines everything that we try to do, uh, attracts all of this attention. Um, also, you know, costs $40 million a year or something. Um, Mm -hmm. and now, you know, and again, look, it's not my problems with Cristiano, you know, are a mix of his uh, atrocious personality and his army of incel fanboys who worship him. Um, but he was at one point, like he was an incredible player. And I think the idea, you know, the the thing about his evolution is not wrong. And again, he's a pan. It's like it's it reminds me of like the when people try to say Kobe Bryant was a top five NBA player. You're like Kobe Bryant is a top twenty NBA player, and that's a huge a huge compliment. Um, who also, like Cristiano Ronaldo, inspired some of the worst, uh, the one of the collective worst fan, fan bases in the world. Um, but what we're talking about with Lionel Messi, particularly after this tournament, is somebody, after right after he won, a friend of mine turned to me and said, you know, you know he's like now the pantheon is, is Pele, Maradona, and, and Messi. And I was kind of like, I mean, that's true. Like if you're building the great, you know, whatever. It's not like no, it's not like Bill Simmons. I'm like you know Mount Rushmore of soccer, Pele, Maradona, Messi, Cruyff, or something. But I think you know with this, you're like he's in the conversation for the greatest athlete of all time, like period. Uh, whereas Cristiano Ronaldo is you know he's the great one of the three greatest players of his generation. That's great. Like everyone should be happy about that. Now he's dead, and he or not dead, but you know he will play for Al Nasser, and he will make you know, a billion dollars and help launder one of the worst, most oppressive, brutal, uh, brutally anti-democratic regimes in the world. Um, and we won't have to think about him. Meanwhile, like Messi, you know, Messi plays Bayern Munich in the Champions League in, you know, mm-hmm. four weeks. You know, there's the sort of three eras of, of Cristiano's career, right? right? He was, um, he started 
uh, at Manchester United, or he didn't start there, but he became an international star at Manchester United, and he played as a kind of wide midfielder in the David Beckham mold, slowly became more attacking, moved to Real Madrid, and, and then eventually becomes an elite finisher at Manchester United, goes to Real Madrid, um, is just this elite poaching finisher, uh, and which is, again, an extraordinary change. Almost nobody learns how to finish the way that he did. Uh, and then... In his later career, you know, I think Barney Rene, the Guardian sports writer, compared him to a siege engine. You know, you kind of had to wind him up and put him into position. But once he was there, you know, he could still do amazing things, which he did, you know, the, the tail end of his Real Madrid career uh, and then going into, into Juventus. Um, but he's just become a, a clear drag on every team that he's played for since, since he went to Serie A after he beat my beloved Liverpool in the Champions League final in 2018, which we don't talk about. But you know, and that that's been clear. And he's refused to. Everyone can see it. Anyone with eyes can see that he's worse. That he's not particular. Not only is he not as good, but that he's become uh, become a sort of a, an albatross around the the necks of the teams that he's played for, except for him. And he insists on continuing to do it. And it's like that. It's that hubris, right? It's and again, I think for him, he's always tried to portray himself as this kind of Greek god. And that's why, again, his fan base is so toxic because it's. These um, grotesque virgins who uh, who idolize him and want to emulate him because he you know embodies this kind of perf- perfected masculinity, uh, but he's not that anymore, and he's not. But he hasn't been able to realize it either, um, and so you know he nobody deserves failure quite like he does right now. And and I think from that Piers Morgan interview onwards, I don't know if we've ever seen a spectacular crash of like a star athlete in this way. Like he has just bombed out of top level international soccer in the most self-inflicted way imaginable. I decided that Ronaldo is definitely on my shit list from now on when I saw a photo of him and Jordan Peterson together. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, it's been a, a mainstay of my group chats recently, but again, too, you're just like, you know, with friends like Jordan Peterson and Piers Morgan, you know, who needs enemies. Right. Yeah. Um, but again, like this is somebody who I don't even Piers Morgan was, throwing a fit after Argentina won too. And you're just kind of like, you know, this is like these people just become extensions of Cristiano's incredible ego. And again, you know, look, you know, one of the things that I love about this at the risk of being hypocritical, one of the reasons I love about this tournament has been, you know, I always was just like who, you know, Cristiano always had a um, uh, focus grouped personality, right? It was clear that a bunch of marketing executives got together and said, this is how you're going to act. Messi had no personality, right? He's, I mean, I think he still is the most extraordinary, certainly the most extraordinary soccer player, maybe the most extraordinary athlete I've ever seen. But you were always just kind of like, who is this guy? And over the last two international tournaments, I'm like, oh, he's a prick. Uh, and but, it, but it's great. Like, But, you know, so it's, you know, he's just being a jerk in the right way. And uh, also, I want to uh, commend the incredible Moroccan team. That was the other big story of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I think it's everything. Uh, I mean, that team is like everything you want out of a World Cup. Uh, the other thing about them, too, is like a lot of times these teams go far, and they're stodgy and defensive and conservative, and they weren't really like that at all. I mean, they played extraordinary defense, but on attack, they were like so lovely and fluid. Uh, they're so well coached. I mean, again, I think they're the first African team to ever make the top four. Uh, the fact that there's a third place game in the World Cup is an insane legacy of the fact that it started as part of the Olympics, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But 
but I just, yeah, I mean, that was the best story in the World Cup. I mean, it was it was the best story, I think, until Messi won. Uh, and it, it's at risk of getting memory hold now. But I think that they, you know, they were really good. And I think, again, this marks a kind of new era in the kind of global, the globalization of soccer. And in a way that I think is really good, where I think for a while there was a risk of the kind of European hegemony that we've seen since 2002 continuing because these teams were really plucking. It used to essentially be that, if you were Ashraf Hakimi and you had, you know, really grown up in, in Spain or, or France or Belgium or wherever else, you would just end up playing for the team where you kind of, you know, were naturalized or, you know, where your parents had immigrated to. And on this Moroccan team, you know, a lot of those players were not born in Morocco, but, um, but they are all extraordinary. And I think, um, I think there's hope, you know, that, that what we're starting to see is, uh, is a kind of new era, at least in, of, you know, countries like Morocco I think the Ghanaian team is going to be very good in the next World Cup. Um, I'm just, yeah. I mean, again, I think this World Cup is really surreal because politically, you know, I kept getting really excited about it and then just feeling horrible guilt based on everything else that was going on. Um, Yeah. But I I kept checking myself all the time about my feelings about the cup because I felt myself sort of, you know, loving it and then snapping out of it because like (laughs) (laughs) it's being held in this psychotic nation state where, you know, (laughs) yeah, I was like, I'd been kind of writing columns about it, like off and on for the New Republic where I work. And uh, for a while, I was just like, all right, one about soccer and then one about like, you know, all of the other horrific political stuff that's happening and then by the end i was just like we just have to mix these all <laughs> to be all mixed together um and again i think you know the, me- the media coverage of this i think in general and it's not true in the u.s political coverage or at least in the sorry the television coverage of it but in general i thought this is the best coverage of the actual host nation it was honest and fair i think um and again it does sour it somewhat because i think you know for me I'm trying to think like, you know, I've watched almost every game of every world cup since 2002 at this point. And this is by far the best one since then. Like, I don't think it even really comes close. 2006 would maybe be the closest. And like, um, you know, it has a pretty strong claim to be the best, the most competitive world cup, the most chaotic world cup, um, the most fun. Um, but yeah, it is, it all is made slightly, um, I guess bittersweet by, the fact that it also existed to to promote and launder the reputation of a country that you know uh, that that sort of wantonly slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of underpaid migrant workers, and is yeah brutally anti democratic. And again, also too, you know, the other thing that I as I watched Messi uh, collect the trophy, you know, I was like, this is wonderful. And then I just had this thought where it's like, oh, Saudi Arabia is watching this and planning their twenty thirty uh, bid. And I think that they're, you know, they're learning from it as well. So I think that people have learned how to adequately cover sports washing and that, you know, Qatar had hoped that they would get the, you know, here in the U S we have this, uh, I have to plug my friend, Aaron Timms, who had a wonderful takedown of Fox's coverage for the guardian. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they didn't cover any of the political stuff didn't cover any of the migrant stuff. Um, but, you know, I think in general, you know, Qatar, they got an honest light shined on uh, on their political climate, the way that they treat women, LGBTQ people, um, you know, some religious minorities. 
and and I do think that that will be the way that these things are covered going forward. And I think you know I've been thinking about this with the 2026 World Cup, which are two great nations will be sharing with Mexico. And I think you know I I think genuinely American gun culture will be the big story of uh, the World Cup in the lead up. That European countries in particular, but will also be focusing on anxieties of people traveling to America, given the you know extremely high rate of gun homicides in this country. You know, in twenty twenty six, you know, we could also very easily see a, a second term of Donald Trump. We could see President Ron DeSantis. I think that that could also, I think, create another very interesting political climate as well. And I think it's also the kind of thing too, as somebody who for work reasons, has to watch a lot of Tucker Carlson, among other things. Um, I think the politics of that World Cup, I think the assumption from a lot of people is that it will be run more smoothly. And I think obviously, you know, we don't have to go and build a bunch of stadiums in the desert. Uh, We don't have to go to Nepal and lie to a bunch of people about working conditions and pay to build the facilities. So I think in that way, it will be less... um, uh, immoral and intense, but I do think that the political coverage I think is not going to change. I think that's a good thing. Like that's the way it should be. Um, it's just going to be crazy. Well, this was a show about winners, Michael Winner and the Argentine national team. Yes, it was a, it was a pleasure talking to you about it, and make and thank you for spending another half hour talking about soccer with me when you've been doing this for weeks now. I mean, I love talking about soccer, so I will do it forever. Whenever I can, whenever I can, I will. So uh, be careful what you wish for. I'll come on and talk to you about the FA Cup or something. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about the Bolivian, uh, <laughs> what the standings are in the Bolivian Football Federation. I, I thankfully haven't gotten that much into sicko mode, but I was like, oh, you know, English League Cup starts again. On Wednesday, or I guess on Tuesday. I missed it now, but yeah. I'll probably watch it tomorrow. So, Alex, where can people find you on social media? <laughs> what a funny question to ask these days. Um, but I'm not on any of the, the pretender sites. I'm going no. down with a ship. Uh, I'm uh, at Alex underscore Shepard on Twitter. Uh, and that's the only place that really matters for me. This was great. I'm glad we finally did this episode that we've been talking about forever. Well, let's do it again sometime. Come on back anytime you like, Alex. Please do. I'll think of a new movie that I can uh, bother you about for years. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons get access to bonus episodes every month. There are about three dozen bonus episodes waiting for you to listen to if you sign up at patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. I'd like to wish my listeners a very happy holiday, and we'll have another episode of Junk Filter in the new year. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you so much for listening. Every day.